Amen. Thank you, worship team. God is so good. Amen. Well, happy March, everybody. We made it. It's March. Um, Yeah, there we go. Bless the Lord. Uh, It is a good gift, a new beginning, a new month, signs of spring coming. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kathy Haug, and I'm a part of the teaching team here at 3rd. And if we haven't met because you're new to this room or new to 3rd, we want to invite you to take a minute before you go and let us know a little bit of information about yourself so we can follow up and help you learn more about what's happening in this auditorium community. There's a simple, short sign-up on the back table. You can leave us your information as you go. We would love to hear more, learn about your story, and get to know you. Um, So we are are thrilled to be in the second week of, I'm pumped about this series, Lives Jesus Changed, uh, and honored to get to teach. And I do want us to kind of remember, though, that this is part of our bigger flourishing vision and series, right? Where we've been trying to look at what it does it mean to flourish in our relationships with God, with our neighbor, and ultimately with the world, And so this series on lives Jesus changed in Lent is actually building off where we've been even in the first part of the year, as we were talking about flourishing in our relationships, and particularly thinking about how we steward our sexuality as we relate to one another in the human family. And so I just want to say even briefly, thanks for so many ways that you all have been engaging in 2023 so far, Um, well beyond Sunday mornings for so many of you. You've been in groups and learning in reading um, classes. You've been walking with your middle school and high schoolers through the video series on sexuality. And, And I just want to say thank you for the ways you're engaging. And I know as we keep talking about our relationships in all the varied aspects of them, that we still have a long way to go, right? We have a lot to learn and we wanna keep being transformed by Jesus. And um, I just wanna say, I've been really compelled by a beautiful vision, I think that is coming into more clarity that we're in some ways kind of at the start of this journey. We've been on it, but we're really starting. And there's been a stated five-year dream that this community, even as we hold to what we believe is actually a good and beautiful, historic, biblical sexual ethic, that even as we hold to that, that we long to be a place of refuge where people, no matter their sexuality, no matter their sexual history, can be found, be known, and walk with Jesus in flourishing. And that is our deep desire. And so we keep learning. And we've been learning that this is not just a conversation as we're talking about relationships and how our transformation with Jesus fuels health in our relationships. This isn't just like an ideology or an abstract theological thing we're talking about. Like these are real stories, right? They're our stories. They're our friends and our roommates. They're our kids. And so it's really important that we also are looking at the scriptures and the stories of people whose lives have been radically transformed by Jesus, right? And sent into healthy and whole community together. And that's why this is such a beautiful way to build in our learning, right? And we're looking at stories throughout John's gospel. And in fact, we're going to be in John all the way up until the summer when we turn to Philippians. And um, as Tom was saying last week, there's a lot about John that really kind of stands out as unique among the biography writers. And before we get into our text for this morning, 
I just want to say one of the reasons I think I love this series on transformation is because um, it's near and dear as someone who works in student and campus ministry. And our vision statement actually with InterVarsity, the ministry I've worked with for a couple of decades, um, is right in line with this. And so we talk in InterVarsity about how our vision is to see lives transformed, campuses renewed, and world changers developed. Now, some of you know that here at Third, even, um, you maybe even contributed. A group worked right in this room not too long ago on a kind of a revised and new, fresh vision for our church community. And vision matters. What we want to see matters. And this vision of InterVarsity, it's, it's not new. It's been around decades, but it still captures me because I have seen hundreds and hundreds of real people totally changed by Jesus, and their life sent on a completely different trajectory. And in fact, I was just um, hearing some testimonies freshly of some ministry partners and staff colleagues who were former students, and I talked to one woman, I've told her story before, um, but my friend Lois has an incredible testimony. See, her sister Vivian went to Iowa State in 1947. And she got involved with an university Bible study. This was only like six years after the movement had even started in the U.S. And Vivian, they lived in this area. She got involved with a Bible study. And she had a life-changing encounter with Jesus in the scriptures. And she would come home and talk with her two sisters and her mom and dad about how she was changing. And in their home, where they were self-described, Lois said, we were kind of a casual Christian, occasionally came to church or prayed at the table. Um, but one by one, she, her sister, and her parents all became devoted followers of Jesus because of the ripple impact of her sister Vivian coming to faith. I thought recently, too, about my first co-worker in university, Steve. And Steve's story goes back. He was not a Jesus follower for the many uh, first few decades of his life. Um, he had a very successful business career, was making a lot of money. Life was good. He was partying hard. And Steve was in two near-death accidents. And after a second, in the hospital, he had this dramatic encounter with Jesus and took a total 180 in his life. He left his work in the marketplace and felt a call to minister to young people to help them choose a different path. And every time Steve told his testimony... Time and time again, as he moved home and wanted to minister in his hometown, which happened to be my hometown, I saw people say, I need to know this Jesus for myself. And time and time again, lives were changed. And what Lois and Steve would tell you, and what so many students and faculty and staff we work with would tell you, is that when you encounter Jesus, not just is your own life transformed by that encounter, but your transformed life can actually transform the community all around you. Uh, this is a picture of a student testifying to this to other students. And in um, this moment at the conference, she says, your transformed life will transform a community, right? This is Angel. Your transformed life will transform your community. And often students think, even if I change, what, what could I possibly have an impact in my dorm or in my family or on my athletic team or in my field of study? But we see it time and time again, this ripple effect. And that is why we love this John 4 text that we're going to be in, because it so beautifully demonstrates that very truth. So if you want to turn to John with me, we're going to be in John 4. 
And like I said, you know, Tom was highlighting that in John's gospel, he takes some more, he's a bit more artistic in his approach and how he puts the narratives together. And in some ways, he's so intentional and he does highlight stories or kind of lingers in stories that many of the other gospel writers don't. And this is one of them. And one thing that's really interesting about John's gospel is he also expressly states the purpose driving his writing. And in John 20, we see that purpose captured. Um, In John 20, 30 to 31, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Right? There's too many to capture. But these are written, John writes, that you may believe uh, or continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. And that, for the readers of John, would have sounded familiar because they've heard language like that before. Okay, so if you want to kind of think back, John 1 to 3, let's get caught up with um, where we've come so far in John's gospel. So John 1 would have had this very language. We would have heard that in his opening salvo, right? Whereas he introduces the character of the word who is Jesus, who was there before things were made, whom through everything has been created, who is life itself, right? He says, in the word, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all people, right? So those images of life and light are going to persist. Then we meet John the Baptist, right? We meet John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And John is pointing people to Jesus, saying, look, the Lamb of God, come see for yourself. This is the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus is calling people, first Andrew. And then Andrew gets his brother, Simon Peter, And then Philip is called, and then Nathaniel. And so these Jewish disciples are being gathered as they see Jesus for themselves. Then we see John 2, and we have this first public demonstration of the power of Jesus as he changes water into wine, right, for the disciples and the family members and the servants to see at Cana. And from there, we actually see the first public act of resistance in the temple as Jesus turns over the tables and challenges the religious corruption of the day. And from that kind of tense moment, Nicodemus comes and finds Jesus at night, right? That's what Clayton unpacked last week for us. Nicodemus comes and seeks Jesus. But pressure is building because more and more disciples are being made. The ripple is spreading And as it's kind of heating up in Jerusalem, Jesus is like, it's not quite time, so let's go back to Galilee. Let's go back to the north where he's from. That's where we're going to pick it up in John 4. So um, you can look with me at this text. There's a lot of story to get to. We probably won't get to every little bit of it. Um, And I hope you've been following the great posts on Facebook and Instagram. There have been six fantastic perspectives shared Um, from our church family. So special thanks to Isaac and Kate and Mike and Allie and Mia, Clayton and George. Thanks for giving us some new ways to see this text. Um, We're going to see what we can find together as we pick up in John 4, starting at verse 4. So yeah, if you're following in one of the pew Bibles, I guess they're not pews anymore, chair Bibles, um, we're going to be on page 1052, John 4. So, okay, things are heating up. They're heading out. And it says in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples, they'd gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, John tells us. So this is a lot of kind of setup of the encounter, right? And there's a ton of cultural and biblical context. We can't get to everything. But there are a few things I think important to see here, maybe that you've seen before um, or might be fresh. So first of all, notice it started right away. He had to go, right? That's the part we should notice, that urgency. He had to go. Now, we don't know. There's actually, there are two ways to go to the north out of Jerusalem. Um, There is a kind of a longer path to the east, but this is the shortcut. But many Jews um, took the time to go the long way to avoid going through Samaria because of the ethnic and political and religious hatred and animosity that existed between these people groups. Now, we don't know um, if it's the urgency pressing Jesus or exactly what's going on, but we do know that Jesus is always doing the will of his Father, Right? So we know he's in a place of obedience as he has to go through Samaria. So the thing to remember about Samaritans, this land and this people, is that history. They got a lot of history, right? So Samaritans um, were a people who were descended um, from those kind of Jews who'd been in the northern tribes when they were conquered long time ago, by the empire of Assyria. And as the Assyrians came and conquered, the way that they um, destroyed the identity of conquered peoples is that they assimilated, right? So they forced them to intermarry um, and kind of diluted their identities as a people. And so this is a mixed ethnic group that the Jews say, you are a mixed ethnicity, you're unpure, unclean because of that history. And so we've got the ethnic hatred, we've got the ethnic tensions. There's also religious tension. Now it's interesting because the Samaritans actually, from a religious sense, they think of themselves as kind of the purists, the keepers of the law. They were like, we just hold to the original five books and you all, you kind of Jews out of the tribes in the southern kingdom, when you got taken off to Babylon a long time ago, y'all came back with some weird ideas and your theology got all bad and you added all this new stuff, so we're the purists and you've got it wrong. So in religious sense, think more like Protestant Catholic tension, right? Deep, vitriolic hatred. We've got it right, you've got it wrong. No, we've got it right, you've got it wrong. And politically, too, even their landmarks were different. The Jews, their holiest place was in the Temple Mount, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where they worshipped. And the Samaritans actually said, no, no, no. The high place of worship is Mount Gerizim. That's the real Mount Moriah where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. That's the holy place where we're supposed to worship. It was a mess. And all of this comes into this encounter which makes it all the more phenomenal. John tells us it's at noon. 
We don't know. We know the woman's alone. We know it's noon. We don't know all of the details. We know Jesus has probably walked a while and he is actually thirsty and probably tired. But I want you to think for a second about even the contrast between this woman's encounter and Nicodemus that Clayton unpacked for us last week. Because John is, he's intentional in his choices to put these stories side by side. And other than they are with Jesus alone in their encounter. There's not much else they've got in common, right? Nicodemus comes at night. The Samaritan woman comes in the middle of the day. Nicodemus is an insider, a powerful Jewish religious leader. The woman doesn't even get named. She's on the outsides. She's marginalized. She's othered, particularly by the Jewish powerful. And when you think about that range from Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman, John wants our eye to consider the fact that an encounter with Jesus can happen anywhere in between. And that should be such good news for the reader, right? There is no one beyond an encounter with Jesus. So let's go back to the story. What happens next? Jesus asks for a drink. She raises the realities of their hostility between peoples. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Um, you'd be unclean if you use this vessel I have to drink out of. And Jesus answers her in verse 10 and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, um, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Well, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't keep getting thirsty and have to come here to draw water. So we have this exchange, right, about the water. And in the story, as we've talked, it's fascinating, right? Because Jesus, in this interaction, actually has what we would say is kind of all the power in the situation, right? And yet it's interesting that as he's holding that, what does he actually first do? He actually acknowledges his vulnerability and his humanity and says, I'm thirsty. Will you give me a drink? And she raises all the problems with this scenario, right? She's like, you remember, you know, the whole thousands of years of ethnic hostility and male, female, and Gentile? You remember all that, right? But isn't it so disarming that Jesus is just honest about his very practical need? And she settles in, Right? And Jesus breaks all the rules for the sake of a connection and a relationship with this woman. And he says to her, essentially he's like, you know what? You think this well is good and it's a good well. This is a, probably an actual spring um, of good clean water that has served the people 
for many generations, but he's like, you think this is good? You have no idea. I've got something so much better. So much better. I've got something that, he says, it could actually be like a well right inside of you that springs up and never runs out. And understandably, the woman's like, well, I like the sound of that. Right? I, who, who of us loves to have consistent, ongoing place of need? We don't love being a people who need things. She says, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Now, she doesn't quite understand what Jesus is offering, of course, right? But it raises this larger question about her real and deep needs, and she wants more. And from that place, he actually turns the conversation in an unexpected way. Do you remember what he says? If you look back at the text, he says, well, go and get your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's hard not to go, okay, Jesus, like, what's your intent when you say that? Go and get your husband, right? What are we trying to get at there? Because I know enough about Jesus' character that I don't think that he's being, like, cruel or manipulative or passive-aggressive with her. I trust his character. And so I started just wondering. I was like, there's something in here about giving her a chance to even reveal more of the reality at play. Because could she not just have easily lied about it or change the subject? She's just honest. She's like, I don't have a husband. And all of a sudden, that kind of transparency opens and Jesus says, I know. And I know all of it. I know you. Now, a lot about the Samaritan woman gets assumed, um, and, and some of it could very well be correct, but it's interesting, right, when we learn about these five husbands, we kind of read a lot into that culturally. Um, certainly, five husbands would not have been normative. It would have been outside um, kind of normal experience. It would have been um, a cause for some ostracization of some sort, but we don't really know the story, right? And sometimes this woman gets pegged as like promiscuous, we make these assumptions, but we don't know. We don't know what happened with those five husbands. And actually from some cultural context, it might make more sense to read or assume some things like she might have had a few husbands who died. Um, or she was divorced because she couldn't produce children. We don't know the story, but it is interesting to try to check our assumptions a little bit, right? Um, in this whole relationship series, I feel like that's one of my key takeaways from our learning together, is like, if you've heard one person's story, you've heard one person's story, right? We've been talking about this. We don't know. And assuming we're not Jesus and don't know everything about everyone's life, right, the invitation for us is to be curious, to learn, to wonder, to have compassion and ask, 
And Jesus lingers, and the compassion actually is in exposure unexpectedly. And yes, maybe she's alone out at the well because of the stigma around those relationships and the women don't want to be with her at the same time to draw water. All of that could very well be true. But isn't it just as plausible that this woman just wants to hide because she's depressed? She's full of sorrow. Isn't it just as plausible? And Jesus comes to her in that and says, be known. Let's just put it out there. And as that comes out, now the woman takes the conversation into yet another direction. I don't know if she's uncomfortable with this exposure or um, she's like, oh, he is a prophet. We better talk about, you know, holy prophetic things. But she takes the conversation to a new place. Let's go back to the text. She says this. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, and yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. For God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I love it. You know, she takes this conversation in a whole new direction, and Jesus is like, oh, so you want to talk theology now? Okay, right? So she kind of turns it, but he goes with her, right? He lets her lead. He follows her through the conversation. It's a beautiful way to witness, right, to truth. So he turns the conversation and he listens and he challenges. And at the end of the day, it's interesting because he's like, you know what? Samaritans, you don't have it all right. We know some things, Jews, I'm coming from the Jews, but Jews don't have it all right. And someday, it's not going to be about where you worship and place. Which, by the way, it's hard for us to understand how radical that is, that he would say that. I mean, it's just... Mind-blowing. He says, someday, God's going to find the true worshipers he's seeking. And the undertone in this story, as John captures it, is that God is seeking true worshipers right here in Samaria. In an unexpected and written-off place. No one is beyond an encounter with Jesus. In that moment, you know, there's this kind of beautiful stillness that falls, I think, in the story. And the woman, um, maybe it's too much for her to take in, but she goes, well, the Messiah is coming, the Christ, and he's going to explain everything, so it'll be okay. Good conversation, but this is maybe beyond us. Messiah is going to explain everything. And Jesus, I imagine, looks her right in the face. It says, I, the one you're speaking to, I am he. Can you imagine that moment? 
I'm he. You are no longer alone. I have sought you out. You are found. Worship. And it's this moment that must have felt holy, that the disciples come back with their food. I don't know. Like, hey! But they must have known, like, this was a holy moment, because John says they didn't say anything. They're like, surprised that Jesus is talking to the woman, but they kind of keep their questions to themselves, right? John captures them, but they keep them to themselves. And then the woman drops her jar, and it says she goes back to her community and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see for yourself. So she goes back and the disciples are like, oh, lunchtime? So is it lunchtime? You know, she had this thing around water and they're like, food? And he's like, you don't get it. I have food you don't even know about. My food is to do the will of my father. He's like, look at this. Look at Samaria. Look at this village. There's a harvest here that you don't even see. And the truth is, the disciples have not just written off this woman, but this whole community as beyond the encounter and the transforming power of Jesus. And he's like, you missed it. There's a harvest here. And you just wait. Because the woman comes, right? The village comes out to meet Jesus. Because she's testified. And there is some mystery there. We don't know. Was, was she actually less stigmatized than we thought? That she had some influence? Was this just a supernatural moment? Um, was, you know, this whole community just so thirsty like her? They couldn't help themselves. But they come out. And I love how the text ends. You've got to hear this. If you look at the end of our text, it says this. It says that many of the Samaritans, this is 39, from that town, they believe in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the village, the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we heard for ourselves. And we know this man really is the savior of the world. Her testimony of transformation pointed her community to Jesus, whom they welcomed to draw near. They lingered. They had their own encounter. They drank deeply of the life offered by Jesus for themselves. And her transformed life transformed the community. And even people and communities we are tempted to believe are beyond the transforming power of Jesus. It is just not so. It is just not so. No one and no people group, no community is beyond a life-altering encounter with Jesus. So what do we do with this story how do we take it in? How do we drink it in? There's so many ways you could apply what we learn out of a text like this. Um, I was talking at home with Chris about it, uh, and he was wearing um, this shirt at home. Anyone recognize this lady, the Belle of Amherst? This is Emily Dickinson right here. 
says can't stop, won't stop, because, you know, literature teachers teaching high school, you make t-shirts for things. And if you teach literature and theater, you make Emily Dickinson t-shirts. So um, this uh, is a reference to a well-known poem of hers that says, uh, because I could not stop for death, death kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. But so we were riffing on other Dickinson poems that we liked, and I, we came to one that I was like, oh, this is perfect for this story, actually. And it's one that starts like this. It starts, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. You know this one? Have you heard this one? Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Truth dazzles us gradually. And we see this in the story, and so many writers for millennia following Jesus and seeking God have thought about this idea, the reality that, you know, sometimes uh, an encounter with the fullness of God is more than our humanity can take in. And so we actually are invited to keep coming back to Jesus, to let the well spring up in us in fresh ways that we will be dazzled again and again and again by Jesus. So that's my first invitation for us today, is encounter Jesus afresh, right? There are so many ways that we could do that. But let's have a fresh encounter and be dazzled again. The second takeaway I have for us is I want us to remember that like this story, so many times the reviving of people and the reviving of the church, it's going to start on the edges where you least expect it. It's going to start through people and communities that are often on the margins. But we all have communities behind us. Maybe we thought could never know Jesus. But I want to challenge you, don't give up on the people behind you. Don't give up on those communities. And don't assume it is not your transformation that will unlock the transformation of someone you love or a whole community behind you. So worship team, come on up. We have one more song this morning. And maybe that will be a place to have a fresh encounter with the dazzling beauty and truth that Jesus is bringing to you. But I also want to commend to you, there's so many ways as a community. Um, we've had these beautiful invitations to drink afresh, right? You can follow the reflections on these texts online. Um, you could join us to pray and worship. My understanding is the top of the prayer tower is getting pretty full. Wouldn't that be a great problem that we have to go somewhere else? Because so many of us are just so hungry and thirsty to worship Jesus. And pray for our community. Pray. And I want to challenge you specifically out of this story. Would you tell your transformation story sometime this week? Tell someone in your life or your community how you are different because you've had an encounter with Jesus and see what God does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you come to us. 
You meet us where we are, and you do dazzle us. You draw us in. You offer more than we would ever expect or hope for ourselves. And God, I pray that you would help us to remember with joy the ways we, in our encounters with you, are different. And to trust that you might use our testimony of transformation to bless the world around us. So give us joy and courage to keep drawing near to you, to speak of you with passion, and to watch as you continue to transform this world. Teach us to worship now, and Lord, as we encounter you, Lord, if you're drawing us to receive prayer or to meet you in communion, God, would you have your way in this space of worship? We love you, Jesus. Amen.